Before we start, I just wanted to let you know that you can become a paid subscriber of LECA on Substack, Patreon or Apple Podcasts and you'll get access to exclusive content to hear and read. Subscriptions really help support LECA. So if you're in a position to do that and you'd like to, head to lekapodcast.com forward slash support to find out more. And just a note that subscriber episodes start again next month. This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This month on the Lekka Book Club, Do Yourself a Flavour by Fliss Freeborn. Did you go to university? Because if you did, there's a chance that someone bought you, or you bought yourself, one of the many student cookbooks available. Maybe more than one. (laughs) But did you actually find it or them useful? I definitely owned a couple of these myself, and I can't say that I distinctly remember cooking anything from them. Definitely nothing memorable, and certainly nothing that I continued cooking once I left student life. Fliss Freeborn feels very strongly that these books are more often than not a waste of your time and money, and with Do Yourself a Flavour, she's written a different kind of cookbook. For students, yes, but also for anyone who wants to get themselves out of a pesto pasta rut, as she puts it more importantly have a good time doing it. I deliberately did not want the word student in there because I think it really diminishes what people think about cooking and it diminishes what people who would buy the book. I think because the recipes serve too they can be scaled up or scaled down so it's not just for students it's it's for everyone but we'll be I make a lot of references to being drunk at university. Yeah I think the recipe should work for everyone really. Fliss started university with a few years of cooking at home already under her belt So she was in the ideal position to start cooking for her friends. And eventually she wasn't just providing delicious home-cooked meals for them, but also recipes too. She started a food blog while studying, mostly so she'd have an easy way to send instructions to friends. And this, a few years in, led to an unusual lucky break for her. Can you just give me a sense of like where in your life this book started happening I guess when did you first have the idea of it and um when did you start writing it so obviously writing a book had never ever really come into my mindset I decided to go and study linguistics at university which is a very ill-advised thing to do um and I really hated it so I had to have some sort of like creative outlet somewhere so I started writing a food blog just because I kept getting asked for recipes the whole time because I'm a feeder (laughs) so everyone would come to my house and I'd feed them and go oh this is really nice where did you get the recipes like oh just you know it's mine and you can have it if you want so I was writing out recipes like a couple times a week so I started a food blog just for my mates and I did it for very consistently for about four years and then in December 2021 a certain food critic with very big hair and a jazz quartet uh, found me completely by accident on Twitter and shared my blog to his followers like unbeknownst to me and then he sent me an email, Jay. So this is Jay Rayner for, for, <laughs> for clarity. For the avoidance of any doubt. For the avoidance yeah. of any doubt. This is Jay Rayner. And he sent me an email and said, don't do this for free. He said, uh, you need to be uh, writing for a living. And I went, okay, because I hadn't really, I thought I'd end up in recruitment. So uh, I, <laughs> I sort of took, it took his words to heart, really, um, and started sort of pitching to newspapers about uh, sort of various things I thought about but he also put my blog link in front of a literary agency who mm. then got in touch with me and said would you like to write a book 
about student cooking and I sort of said yes mm. but no I don't really want it to be completely for students because I'd, mm. I'd argued in a piece of mine that there isn't really such thing as student food it's just food that you cook when you're a student like you know we're definitely breaking away from like the cast of pot noodles and beans on toast like we're you know there's been a food revolution in this country and I think we need to let's keep dream up bigger, with it yeah. yeah let's dream bigger here <laughs> but I have ended up writing a student cookery book so so there we go so that's the that's the sort of long-winded story of um how I came to write a book but it was it, it, I mean I would say that was very concise list it's not long-winded at all it's it, like well edited it was um it was dropped into my lap essentially it wasn't something that I had to go and query or had this idea from a seed age nine or ten but no it was um I feel very very privileged and lucky to have been able to just have this opportunity presented to me which is great yeah it's kind of extraordinary I actually I actually do remember Jay tweeting it and being like huh that's cool really (laughs) yeah yeah and it took me a while to kind of put two and two together and then when I saw the book coming out I was like oh my god yeah I remember yeah it was that so like Jay um I always say that uh he's dropped these opportunities into my lap and he's I said this to him one time and he said no I've merely opened doors and you've just walked straight through them (laughs) which which is a nice way of putting it but um, yeah but I think it's also like it's it's great that you acknowledge like the kind of yeah, I guess, I guess it's int- I guess the way I don't know how to put this away because I don't want to diminish like the achievements that you have because the book's amazing. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's fascinating that some people have the power to do that. Yeah, it's like- absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and, it, and for me, it's actually kind of, it's kind of scary in a way because I'm not part, I have not been part of this world. I didn't expect to be part of this mm. world and living up to the huge expectation that has just been sort of mm. placed upon me by everyone. And everyone thinks, you know, I've been doing it for years and years and I've been liaising this week with like various like publicity people and they're going, oh, can you organize a panel talk? And I'm going, I, I know, <laughs> I don't know how to do any of this. Like this isn't my world, but um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm stepping up to it and then stepping into it. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge thing to have done sort of by accident. Um, I'm, I'm so young as well. Like, well. I, mean, I don't want to be like. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming up for 25 uh, in September, which feels oh yeah, practically feels practically ancient over the hill. now because yeah. I, well, I, start, the, I, I signed the book deal when I was 22. Wow. Um, and so it's been like a long time coming, you know, a late 22, but it's been like a long time coming. And um, yeah, the publishing timelines were insanely long, but here we are. It's done. That's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. So I really love kind of your view on student cooking and student food. Um, and it's something that I find really interesting. So a few years ago, I made a series about kitchens and as part of it, I looked at the way that kitchens had been portrayed in cookbooks and recipe books. And so often it comes in like, it's a very aspirational thing. Like you've got this beautiful, like it's a set essentially. And so few cookbooks with a few, there's a few notable exceptions, but so few actually take into consideration the real life circumstances of many people who want to cook still, but they live in shared houses. They live in kitchens that are like a landlord hasn't refurbed in like mm-hmm. 20 years And it can be very difficult to kind of visualise yourself cooking in that environment when the images that you're being presented are so different from your reality. And as part of that, I did very briefly think about student cooking and how strange it is that, like, that situation that you're envisaging students, students cooking in where, like, people might not have had much exposure to, like, cooking from scratch if that's how they've grown up. And they live in shared accommodation. Like that reality does not change that much. Like later in life for a lot of people because of the housing crisis and like busy lives, etc. So I guess yeah, my question is: Tell me about your beef with student cookbooks. Oh my god, where do I start? Um, I don't. The thing is, now I'm an author. It feels incredibly 
Um, it it's sounds incredibly right? rude to yeah. be critical of other people's <laughs> books. I know how much like work goes into them, but essentially, I think a lot of student cookbooks are written not by students. They're written by people who think mm. that you know, oh, they, they've considered. Yes, it's a cheap recipe. Yes, it's an easy recipe. Yes, it's relatively healthy. But they haven't considered anything that goes along with the context of the recipe. You know how how mm. <laughs> whether you need to be clearing surfaces of other people's washing up before you start. So exactly. yeah, my, so my beef with student cookbooks um, is that they are really quite out of touch with the student experience and I'll caveat that again by saying that anyone who writes about food is probably out of touch with the everyday person (laughs) Um, which you know I'm I'm now sort of embedded within the food world and people my friends are telling me no I don't I don't want to make I don't want to make bread I don't want to do this I just want my meal in 10 minutes on the table so um and yeah so a lot of student cookbooks have this kind of out of touchness to them because they're not written uh, for students or by students. That's my first bit of beef. And that's kind of acceptable. I don't mind an out of touch cookery book, whatever. My main huge ridiculous beef with student cookbooks is how sodding patronizing they are. They just Mm. look, if you're smart enough to get into university, you're smart enough to like know how to chop an onion. And if you, the thing is, if a lot of people haven't you know, cook before and, and the student cookbooks shouldn't be aimed at them. I don't, I don't, mm, I, I, don't think really good point. I think a beginner cookbook is a completely different beast than a student cookbook. Uh, yeah. If you want a beginner cookbook or, you know, the best way obviously to learn is visually and it's via YouTube. I, I strongly maintain that cookbooks are kind of, uh, as an instructional text from the very, very start, are kind of null and void at the moment. They're more of a, they should be more of like an inspiration sort of thing. Like you'd flip through them and go, oh, I don't want, know what to have for dinner. Oh, that looks good. I'll cook that. Rather than, I don't know how to boil an egg. I'm going to look in a book. Like no one no one really does that anymore. Right. So my beef with right. student cookbooks is they kind of try and attempt to do far too much in that, you know, I've got a student cookbook on my shelf. I won't name it because I don't want to be a dick. I have named That's it in an fair. article, but... Um, <laughs> um, it, People it, can it, put the dots together. But it starts want. with, it starts with here's how you boil vegetables. Here's how you boil an egg. And then like by page 36, it's like, here's how to make roast duck with plum sauce. It's like, actually... No, <laughs> like people aren't going to be doing these two things together. So the, the where I've aimed the book that I've written is you can chop an onion, you can make a half decent pasta bake, you know how to feed yourself, you're not stupid, you know how, how to eat vegetables, you know what makes a healthy lifestyle, you just don't do it because you can't be bothered. And that's so fine. Mine is like kind of, here's how to get you out of that pesto pasta, baked potato rut. Here's some fresh ideas that aren't necessarily much more difficult to do they just mm. take maybe a little bit of creative thinking or one outside the box ingredient and then you've got yourself a really, really amazingly elevated meal rather than just your, your plain old pasta bake. So yeah my, yeah, my beef with student cookbooks is I've tackled it head on. <laughs> and the book, you know, the book is like, it's so, like I can hear, even though this is the first time and I haven't met you properly, I've only met you via a screen, but like I, your voice is so clear. Like it is so clear on the page and it's very like, it's very you, the tone of voice. Um, and I guess that's something honed through blogging because it's such a direct way of writing. It feels you can speak directly to people. Um, have you kind of, have you always written that I way? I have always written this way. Um, my ex-boyfriend actually picked up the book. We were good mates. My ex-boyfriend picked up the book and he just started giggling. And I said, what? What's so funny? He goes, your teachers at school will hate you for this because this is what they try to discourage you from doing for five years <laughs> and it's and it's so true I have always written in this style I've always been I've always just directly translated my voice to the page yeah. and obviously there's practice that comes with that and the, ho- and the you're right the blog has honed that in a way but I've, I've always done that and I, I when I first came to university I got very very told off in my essays for it sounding mm. conversational it sounding this and the other but I was like yeah but it's easy to read and it's stylistic like 
But no, they weren't having that. So I learned to write in an academic way off the back of being told off for writing in my way. But so this is so the book is like the first time I've actually been like praised and celebrated for writing in this way because I did a little bit of copywriting work as well. And and in sort of between the I still do a little bit now. And so um, I've had to turn that back. But it feels very, very natural for me to write it completely in this style yeah that's that's really interesting because I think a lot of people can probably relate to that experience of being told to write in a certain way in a particular environment and I think for a lot of people it's very off-putting um in something that's a creative process to be like you're doing it wrong (laughs) so it's really nice that you kind of had the strength of character to push through and now like you're reaping the rewards I um I must also say like a huge massive appreciation post shout out to my editor who just got it from day one like she didn't she did not she was amazing she just kept so much of me in there and I kind of wrote the book thinking that I would be like toned down in the edit in the copy edit so I wrote it like I properly upped the fliss (laughs) expecting my editor to be like right we'll take that out that's inappropriate we'll take that and she just didn't she was like no I love this this is great let's keep this in okay she had some sensible stuff to take out like references to big toes and thrush and she she was like (laughs) I think think one time I said I said I was talking about sausages I think I think I had the phrase in there like there's just mashed up bits of dead pig stuffed inside its own guts and she said Fliss I don't think that should be in a cookbook and I said is it because you're vegetarian and she said no it's because I'm a cookbook editor (laughs) she but she really got it like the rest of the stuff she she let me keep it I can't believe you know there's a there's a little bit of uh, on there's a I've got a section on five things to do with xyz and I've got five things to do with peas and she let me keep in a little story that I wrote about Hansel and Gretel and they meet a some ducks in the forest or something like that Brilliant. but I was yeah. just so oh so blessed to have someone that just understood it completely from day one you know it's such a fun book like <laughs> when you go into the like Chaucer style vegetable tales I was like yes great like more more I think there's kind of a like sometimes an expert like an understanding or an expectation that when we write about food it has to be like serious and it can be funny but it kind of still has to like have this like seriousness or earnestness about it and it's actually it can just be like really silly silly. it's so (laughs) silly I I actually remember so I so that was in one of my blog my very early blog posts and it was actually kind of it was the Chaucer the Chaucer recipe was a very pivotal stage for me in writing about food because I was I was procrastinating an essay that I was writing. It was in my first year at uni. <laughs> I was procrastinating an essay and I just sat down on my bed and just this idea came to me and I was like, why don't I do this? So I wrote it and it took me about two hours to write. And um, then everyone loved it. And I was like, okay, mm. this, this is good because it means I don't necessarily have to write about food in a way that other people write about food. I can yeah. be completely daft with it. And it is daft. That's the beauty <laughs> of it. So tell me about your route into cooking. So you cooked at home as a kid, right? And not only, by the sounds of it, so not only would you cook for the family, you would also um, like economise. So meal plan, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you were very much part of not just the cooking process, but the kind of whole like headspace around Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. everything that goes into that meal. Um, How did that come about in your family life? So... 
I start, I was very lucky that my parents were always involving me in the kitchen from like, you know, the toddler. Like I have one of those clamp chairs that like, my, my parents' first kitchen was really, really tiny. It's like a galley. And I, but I have one of those like um, clamped high chairs that went to the, mm. that clamped on the, on the counter. And my dad would like make me smell all the spices and tell me what was going Aww. in the pan and stuff. So I was like extremely involved. I was always treated like a small adult. <laughs> so I was always extremely involved in that sense. Um, and then I started baking when I was I actually started baking when I was six. So I had... This is a story in the book. Uh, yeah. The fairy cakes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the like, fairy cakes and stuff. So I had this kind of... I was very comfortable in the kitchen from a very, very early age. You know, I wasn't attempting, you know, family meals or anything at that age. Yeah. But I was, you know, making fairy cakes and stuff. And I, I did that until I was probably 12, 13. And then my parents' marriage broke down and my dad sort of... They had a very, very rocky time. My dad left probably mm. around... That he left in sort of various bits between the age of like uh, 13 and 14. So and my mum just needed a hand to, to do stuff. So I took over. I firstly started t- taking over the kitchen in terms of what she'd bought. I would make... I would make meals out of, you know, because we had a lot of tin food. We had a lot of mm. sort of beef mints and sausages and, and sort of, so I could put meals together quite easily like that, having ingested cookbooks for the last, you know, four or five years. He's taken to bed with me. But the whole economizing and home shopping thing kind of came in slightly later when I realized that my mum was like quite, she was, we were struggling like financially. And so I kind of was steering her in the direction of Aldi rather than Tesco and, you know, going into, into bits of all. I never did the full what's in the cupboard meal planning etc but mm. I would go to the supermarket with her and pick out what I would what I thought would be useful um for cooking mm. and I sort of it wasn't on like a weekly basis but it was sort of every other week I would come with her and do that but in the end you know she would just buy what I could make stuff out of at that point I taught myself how to sort of look at the price per 100 gram labels and um you know really economize through that by the value brands and sort of see if I could make something out of nothing you know, without, you know, without wishing to go too far into private life, but money was always, money was always a huge concern in the family. I think probably ungrounded, unfoundedly, actually, uh, you know, looking back, I don't think we had an enormous, I never went hungry. I never, ever went hungry. I I had everything I could possibly want in terms of educational opportunities, ended up at university, you know, I had all this stuff, but um, my, my parents, they were always, trying to just they were trying to better themselves all the time that's kind of like middle class mm. way of oh we don't have this that and the other why can't we do this that and the other and they were they were always trying to better themselves and I think they put a lot of pressure on themselves to have what we couldn't afford and so mm. I was always made constantly yeah. aware of the fact you know we couldn't go out to eat or we couldn't buy coffees out or we couldn't have you know sandwiches that we'd always take out sandwiches and stuff with but which I think is a really normal experience for any sort of you know small family growing up on a mm. middling income you know that we can't afford to do these things but um I grew up in a very very nice area of the world where a lot of people had a lot more money than we did and I think yeah. there was a lot of grounds for comparison there so yeah. I was always made aware of money and and how that worked and I was and I got a job at the age of 13 and carried I've worked constantly since then and um yeah saved and then the university looked at the university looked at my background and went ah single parent low income we'll give you loads of money (laughs) so for the first time in my life I had money and it was like it was Mm. really strange so I saved a lot of it and I worked alongside it as well and I and I but I and I budgeted like for the first month at uni it was so funny I was just like right how can I spend like 10 pounds a week on my shopping and I would like make lists and I would budget and then by the end of by Christmas I was like oh wow I've got loads of money I probably don't need to do this quite as strict as I was doing and then I and then from there that was I, I think a lot of people ask me you know how did you afford to feed people you know how do you you know make your budget stretch that far and I was lucky enough that because I'd been 
given a, a massive grant that I could be mm. quite relaxed about who I fed. And obviously, I'm not going to feed them like salmon and racks no, of lamb, so but you nice know, but I, I, yeah. I've always like. I've always wanted to be generous around food um, yeah. because it's just, it's such a nice thing to do to just be able to invite someone back to your house and be like, oh, do you want some dal or do you want some soup or Absolutely. have some toast? Yeah. yeah. Being able to cook is definitely a catalyst for making lots of friends like, and inviting way. people. And, yeah. you know, having that, there's also no uh, obligation involved. I think a lot of these sorts of things can become quite transactional, but I always sort of was like, no, you can come and eat at my house you, literally whenever you want. Like, that's so fine. And that's really I nice. just, you don't have to come in return. You know, absolutely not. Like I don't, and people, but people would, and that's always really yeah. nice. It's a lovely, nice bonus. I remember one time I, my friend was a law student and he had a, we were going to an AGM for my mountaineering club and he, he, he needed to make it, but he couldn't get out of the library. And I said, look, I'll, I'll bring you a curry. Um, are you, he said, I'm going to have to go home and cook. So I know oh, I'll bring so you a curry. Lovely. No, it's fine. So I brought, so I brought him this curry. And then like a week later, he was like, I'm going to cook you also bucko at my house. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> is a this fair is a trade. fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, so it's been really, really great for opening doors and friendships and people always know that they're going to get fed at mine. And so um, you said when you were a kid, you used to take cookbooks to bed. Um, what were you reading? I was reading all of Jamie's um yes, my pa- so my parents sort of being in this sort of uh, demographic they would be given loads of uh, Jamie Oliver's cookbooks from like 2005 onwards really yeah. and so I, we had uh we had Jamie's 30 minute meals Jamie's 15 minute meals Jamie's great British food adventure all the rest of Jamie's Italian and then we had so the bible that my mum used was of course Delia Smith's complete cookery course so I read through a lot of that but that was that's you know so straight up and down without a huge amount of photos in it it's not massively entertaining to bring kind of a little bit so uh, so we'd use that you know for actual in the kitchen but I would bring and then I think I started getting interested in my own sort of baking and cooking books I got a lot of kids cookbooks given to me Mm. um so I brought so I'd like rip through those as well oh yeah and I had a couple of uh I had good good food by Sarah Raven because I went on like a bit of a sort of teenage health thing which was definitely very thinly disguised orthorexia but which I know that now but I got a lot of like health cookbooks as well and yeah I just sort of read as widely as possible also, all the little cookery booklets that you got at the supermarket, like recipes. I, it was kind of inevitable I was going to write a cookbook, wasn't it, really? Listening <laughs> to yeah, myself I mean, all about the, all this. All the signs were but, yeah. there, really. And then, and then when, yeah. I got to uni, when I got to uni, I sort of scoured secondhand bookshops and found all of mm. Nigella's back catalogue. And I had a couple of, we had a couple of Nigella's um, at home, but I can't actually, mm. for the life of me, remember which ones. Then I really yeah. got into Nadia Hussein when she won Bake Off. Yeah. Like, I cried when she won Bake Off. Um, <laughs> and, and I've got, a, you know a vast vast collection and having a publisher that also publishes Otto Lenghi is really and uh, really useful because they just send Very all nice. of his books as well yeah <laughs> which is great yeah. so yeah I'm a bit, a bit of a cookery book addict and have always oh Nigel Slater as well I used to take him do you take of him course. to bed <laughs> of course so is that how you learn to cook or were you you know you said you watched your dad cook at home um I, I, was there anyone else kind of in your life that person personally you learned to cook from mm, I learned the basics from my dad he taught me you know how to chop an onion you know when to add the tin tomatoes you know the very the very normal basic stuff and um he would soak a lot of beans and we'd have like quite big sort of bean curry type things so I, I learned how to do that and dad was always dad always really liked to have a bit of creative flair in the kitchen he always used to put like chives chives from the garden like over the top mm. of mashed potato and be like oh, it's a restaurant dish Lovely. now yeah. you know that kind of thing so he always liked to sort of play around with that a little bit but my mum was very much a more practical cook you know sometimes meals at home would just be 
fish fingers plain pasta and peas like you know that's yeah and you know it's yeah. kid food fine and she used to buy a lot of mints from the butchers because it was we had a really good local butcher but she would buy like five kilos of mints at the beginning of the month and like freeze it in portions so we would just have like spaghetti bolognese and rice like the whole time with mum which um you know she she did the job and we ate really good home cooked nutritious food so I kind of I've always been I've always grown up surrounded by good home cooked food but it took until I was 14 to really learn sort of how cookery worked and that was from my ex-boyfriend's mum Tanya who is mm. an outrageously good cook. I always like to tell the story of when I first started going out with Pete I went around to his house and there everyone was eating this like meat which was pink in the middle like it was it was a butterfly shoulder of lamb and it had like pistachios and pomegranate seeds and and just the most glorious sort of things around it and Tanya had done it like on the barbecue and it, and it smelled amazing but in my house, we cooked meat until it was done. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and we didn't eat out, so I didn't really know what sort of medium steak was. And so we cooked it until it was done, the same with fish. And so everyone was tucking into this, like, very pink meat. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to get ill. But everyone else seems to be enjoying it. Well, it can't be that bad if everyone else is eating it. And I ate it and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's oh, it's delicious. what it's meant to taste like. <laughs> right, okay. And then I sort of watched Tanya, you know, I, she sort of showed me that fish wasn't meant to be cooked for 45 minutes in the oven in just foil mm. you can flash fry it in a pan and it's really nice and you know she said she taught me all about sort of n not taught me directly like I was never sort of next to her or like you know on her knee but, you like witnessed but I, I, I witnessed yeah. it like they had a really gorgeous open plan kitchen which I would always sit at a like a bar stool and just watch her while she cooked mm. and like she had this amazing in amazing um cupboard full of not just sort of rosemary bay sage cumin but she had all these like dukas and and zug mm. and and lot of herb and spice rubs and pastes and and jars and like in a really otolengi kind of style way and her fridge was just always full of amazing ingredients that I've never heard of and like marinated olives and things like that and it was just like a real eye opener to how food could be yeah yeah so it was a real yeah it was really cool so so I learned a lot from her over those kind of years and I would put what she was doing into practice in my own house as well when I could so but yeah no, so I, I learned from mostly got the basics from my parents and then it was sort of Tanya's Tanya's doing which really influenced it and now I must I must say that my my current my current boyfriend that seems like I'm gonna have another <laughs> string of them my 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 long-term my long-term partner um his dad is a really really good cook and okay, so I've learned okay. loads of stuff from him like I learned about like Laogon Ma chili oil from Martin and um like loads of Asian inspired food from him and you know how to do how to do lots of things on barbecues and mm. he's got a he's got a pizza oven and oh it's great and he loves Italian food so I've I've learned like sort of by proxy I've been with Lewis for five years so yeah thank you boyfriend's parents <laughs> yeah Basically. that's really interesting <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's sort of that makes a lot of sense to me the way you're talking about that because I think one thing that really struck me reading the book was that the kind of recipes and I don't want to like give myself too much credit here because I'm not a recipe writer at all but I think the recipes that you've included in the book really reminded me of the way I like to cook which is I think quite I think quite typical of like an English person that's interested in food where you don't necessarily have a deep-rooted kind of historic food culture of your own you know like again I think similar to you like my parents are really good cooks and they've definitely like the way they cook has changed over the years but I definitely grew up like eating lots of mince-based things like eating stuff that was um not necessarily plain but kind of 
spiced in a way that was very like typical yeah guess, really like, the similar 90s to you. yeah really really similar <laughs> in to England. You, yeah. and so the way that you kind of like acknowledge the origins of things but bring in you know it's very much like I think that is how a lot of people in this country cook and eat so yeah <laughs> definitely I I kind of I consider myself really boring in terms which I am you know I'm typically white middle class absolutely no sort of proper food culture that you know, if I was, if I was Cornish, well, I'm, so I grew up in Cornwall and if I was mm. Cornish working class, you know, that would have meant sort of pasties and saffron buns mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But I, that it's not, it's not even my culture because I mm. drew from everywhere. And as you say, I kind of, there's this kind of tepidness to a lot of English mm. cooking, which I want to, which I really enjoy. <laughs> like, I think I, uh, yeah, I, I well, quite like it. it. <laughs> um, but yeah, whenever I've referenced anything that's not from my culture or has been inspired by something else, like I've been really sensitive about that because there's been a lot of, issues mm. in the past of just of white middle class people who are taking recipes that perhaps don't belong to them or cultures mm. that perhaps don't belong to them and and profiting off them and I mm-hmm. really desperately want to avoid that I think by proxy of having a recipe book with like stuff like Thai style things like I'm, there's some sort of fine line to be trodden but you know where I have referenced other cultures I have been very clear that you know this is not this is not mine because I ate basically mince and potatoes or mince and rice or mince and whatever for growing up nearly every meal like we wouldn't have a particularly varied (laughs) when dad was away we wouldn't have a particularly varied um, diet so I now have this like uh sort of compulsion not to eat the same meal twice like I'm quite happy to have leftovers for lunch or like put a fried egg on top or whatever like make it sort of you know since away but I, I I have like a visceral aversion to eating the same thing for tea twice in a row and so um, is that why you've written the recipes in the book for two yeah <laughs> rather than like you know some of the specifically for a crowd yeah but, some of them yeah so, that makes a lot of sense so the majority come for two because I think because you can have it for lunch the next day or you can yeah. split it with a partner that's a kind of like how was I I also think that it's a lot easier to cook for two than it is for one because you know you're using a tin yeah, of tomatoes yeah, yeah. rather than two you know there's, there's a practical side of that as well but yeah I um actually literally yesterday I cooked a sort of a very loose take on lasagna I had a leftover sausage ragu in the freezer mm. and I was just like, well, I don't want to put that just with pasta so I'll put that in lasagna and I didn't have it I couldn't be asked to make bechamel so I put like cream <laughs> cheese and ricotta and stuff and laid it up Perfect. and then yeah. I'd run out anyway I made this lasagna and I had a portion then Lewis took some for work today and he was like what are you gonna do the rest of it I was like I'll have it for lunch he was like oh, why don't you have some more for tea and I was like, I'm not no I'm, I will make something else and you know that's it and I'm very lucky that I can do that because you know I don't have kids I can work from home yeah, yeah. I have all these sort of things in place that allow me to do so and I know that not everyone's as lucky as that and everyone can be bothered I definitely can <laughs> like it's one of my things <laughs> yeah. if I've had a really bad day I cook something and that just makes it all better. Like the other, I, yeah. I had a real down. I don't know why I had a real down a couple of weeks ago. I think it was just I just planned the book launch, and I was just like kind of anticipating it for ha- to happen. And then my brain was like, oh, "It's going to go wrong. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to leave you one star." Kind Amazon of reviews. that calm before the storm. And so I just yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I just like deep fried like half kilo of chicken thighs, and <laughs> I was like, "That'll do." Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have to. I have this kind of like weird compulsion to cook something different every day of the week. But yes, that's why the recipes in the book are so varied and like you know they 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 exist 
as you say, on this kind of plane of this is an English person cooking someone else's dishes and but like taking influence from everywhere, but it's still varied and it's still like quite different. And you could quite happily work your way through the book and have something different to eat for, you know, for how many recipes are there? More than 75, actually. Because 75 was kind of a round number that I came down to. But um, mm. yeah, yeah but when you consider yeah. all the variations, all the variations yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I realise this is asking you, a bit like choosing your favourite child, but um, are there any recipes in the book that are particularly close to your heart? Can you talk me through one or two of them, just kind of a little bit of context about how you developed them and where you've cooked them for people? So one of the, my so my favourite recipe in the book, and, I, and it is like choosing between your favourite children, but my mother's not found that so difficult. So, um, <laughs> so uh, my, that's a big joke. I love you, mum. <laughs> Fred loves you too. Um, I um, My favourite recipe in the book is the mussel linguine it, I originally mm. did it as a series of limericks but actually it you don't <laughs> even have to like fry onions for it it takes a supermarket packet of mussels uh that you know they're quite cheap then you, you just mm. most people bypass mm. them they, they come in like a cream and wine sauce and you mix that with a bit of fried off cherry tomatoes garlic lemon zest and chili flakes or fresh chili if you have it and then you sort of toss that all together and then you put it around cooked pasta with an absolute boatload of fresh parsley and more lemon juice and that is just like it's the freshest summeriest dish which you can kind of have year round if you really wanted to um Mm. but I've cooked that when camping quite a lot because Mm. as a first night thing because obviously you don't want to keep mussels but if you've just gone to the supermarket for your camping dish and it's in the middle of summer and you'll buy a loch or you'll buy the sea it's just such a lovely thing to have. And if you can forage your own muscles, even better. But <laughs> but it's, um, so I cook, I've cooked that when camping a, a fair amount, which has been really, really nice because it's kind of gourmet, really. It feels really, really posh to have that. Yeah. And it's actually really cheap. So I love doing that one. That's one of my absolute favorite ones. Um, I'm thinking about another one that's really, really close to my heart. I absolutely love the chocolate fudge cake, the Pizza Express chocolate fudge cake. I, yeah, I love that reference. I'd kind of had, I kind of, as a baker, I'd always made chocolate sponge just by sort of substituting like a couple of tablespoons of flour out for the cocoa powder in a Victoria mm. sponge kind of way, which is fine. It makes a really nice sort of very light chocolate sponge. But I, I when I say I like chocolate, I like chocolate. And I like yeah. things to be as chocolatey as chocolatey possible. And yeah. so I came across... And a, a very American recipe for it. And I've kind of like tweaked it and made it my own. And I always cook that. If there's a celebration happening, I will do that enormous chocolate fudge cake. Actually, so uh, that's why it's close to my heart. Um, when I graduated during COVID and we didn't really yeah. know what to do for kind of graduation presents and party. And I, I, lived, with, I lived with three other girls who like my sisters. And we were like, oh, we need to get each other something for graduating. You know, we're graduating, what do we mm-hmm. want? And we all... I think Amanda made us like little key rings out of clay and it was very cute. And then Eve, uh, so Lucy did something else and Eve did something really lovely. And then I said, oh God, I don't know what to do. And they said to me, oh, can you cook us a recipe of our choosing, you know, on the the weeks leading up to us moving out of the house. And Eve said to me, can you make that enormous, really the chocolatiest chocolate cake you can? Can you make it? Can you make it for me? Can I just have it for myself? (laughs) And I, and I said, yes, absolutely. So I made her this chocolate <laughs> cake and I've got a great photo of her in her dressing gown sitting on the counter in our student kitchen just with this enormous slab of chocolate cake. I think it might have <laughs> even been the day. I think style. it even might have been the, the day we graduated. Disclaimer, she didn't have it all to herself. We did eat it all together. But she had she the, she had the first slice yeah. and um, yeah, she, so nice. she loved it. So yeah, we had that. <laughs> I 
love, just coming back to your first, the, the choice of your first recipe, I love the kind of references to cooking while camping yeah. in the book. I do a lot of like, it. Like it just, the first time, I think, I can't remember what the first reference was to it, but I was like, and it really took me by surprise. Oh, I was it would like, have been the, huh? yeah, it would have been the Tex-Mex tomatoes and beans. It's yes, like, the, it's the fajita. It, yeah. yeah, so it's so, it's a, it's a bake, it's frying bacon lardons with fajita spice mix, a t- tin of tomatoes and a tin of mixed beans. Like that's it. But it's such an easy thing to do when you're camping. So yeah, but I do a lot of camping. I do a lot of being outside. I need to, I always say like if I've been spent too much time on LinkedIn reading like PR jargon and I need to go and touch leaf. So I go and do that quite a lot. I'm actually going camping, I'm going snorkeling and camping on Friday. Um, oh so God, I'll probably be, camping, probably be making I mean, that sounds like lovely. advice, advice we should all take. <laughs> go and touch leaf. <laughs> uh, but actually it's a great analogy for um, straightforward cooking because obviously you're limited in the, what you can carry with you. You're limited in what you can do. So it's actually a really, it works so well in a cookbook like yeah. this. Cause it's like, well, if you can do it the pesto over pasta, a little stove. The pesto pasta <laughs> thing was also, that was developed when I was camping as well. Yeah. I took it, I kind of was bored. There's a kind of culture within the mountaineering club I joined of like what you eat for your tea is a jar of ready-made pesto and tortellini. And you know, it's got loads of calories. It's kind of easy to take in. You don't have to worry about it. But I was just like, oh, I'm really, I need to elevate this. This is kind of boring. I d- and I really don't like being bored with food, probably because I was yeah. bored with food as a child. Yeah. And so I kind of took in with me like half a floret of broccoli, like a broccoli florets in a bag, like with some spinach, half a lemon and two tins of mackerel. <laughs> and I sort of mixed it around this pesto pasta with fusilli. And I was like, oh, this is really good. I think I must have been... <laughs> 18 at the time like really early on and then the friend hadn't brought any food he'd forgotten his food he'd left it on the bus or something and oh I'd obviously made loads because I'm incapable of cooking for one and so I was like <laughs> have some of this and he was like how did you make this this is really good and I was like well maybe I have got something here so yeah these all these recipes sort of come in from different angles and yeah a lot of it is developed outside yeah I mean this comes back to what you're saying about like it's just food and, it's just food yeah. you know you can write about it in a specific way but when you, like anyone can cook it yeah anyone could cook it and you know I'm kind of prepared to have a bit of backlash for for saying things like use fresh herbs or here's where you could probably put some capers in if you wanted and then people go oh what sort of student has that in that cupboard it's like well actually quite a lot of them these days and also like (laughs) it's nice to know for people that don't have it it's nice to know that you can do that like give people permission to do the nice things a lot of substitutions and stuff in there and I've also kind of done you know I've pointed out if there's a real budget way that you can do this here's how to do it I think for the Mm. I've got a sort of Thai style coconut green curry and Mm, I've said I've I've indicated you know if you want to add pak choy and you know these fish sauce and all that that's yeah. great please go ahead because that's very authentic you know if you've got lemongrass and galangal do it yeah if you haven't got that and you know and I've said it very caveatedly like I am not Thai you know this is not a Thai yeah. curry yeah. you can substitute it for cabbage and spinach and the cheaper stuff and you can add soy sauce rather than this that, and the other and I kind of like like to give people the options of like picking and choosing which kind of level they're at with it and so yeah I mean I'm sure there's something that I've lost there by making it as broad as possible. I'm sure there's an audience that I've lost, but ah well. <laughs> well, you can't win them all. Can't can win them you? all. Can't win them all. <laughs> Lekker is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my guest, Fliss Freeborn. Do Yourself a Flavour is out now, published by Ebury Press. As part of the monthly Lekker Book Club, I'll be writing about the book over on the Lekker Substack and Patreon. Have you been cooking from it too? Come and chat about your favourite recipes in the comments or tag me on Instagram when you post your finished dishes. I'd love to see them. And another reminder that you can sign up as a paid subscriber to support Lekka on Apple Podcasts, Patreon and also now on Substack. Links are in the show notes. And to any paid subscribers who are listening here, 
Thank you so much for your continued support. And if you've made it all this way through the credits, here is an extra little treat for you, a kind of funny nail in the coffin of student cookbooks. I remembered the name of one I was given as a teenager. I'm not going to name it here because, you know, I've taken a leaf out of Fliss's book. I'm not going to be too shady. And I looked up the author out of curiosity. Uh, she was a teenager when she wrote this book or very a, a young person, shall we say. But turns out that not only was her mum a food writer, she was also from a, let's say, pretty well-known family. So based on that example alone, I think Fliss's point about how people who write student cookbooks are out of touch is pretty accurate. Music on this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Lekker Book Club will be back in September with another delicious read for your kitchen bookshelves. Thanks for listening.